Well, good morning. We are studying the Trinity, that one of the great central, beautiful mysteries about our God. And let's just review a quick statement on what the Trinity is, what we believe. We believe that the God had existed eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that these three are one God and are worthy of precisely the same confidence, obedience, and worship. So what we're doing at this point in our study is walking through each of the three persons of the Trinity. Last week, we talked about the Father, and we saw that the Father is not just a label for God. It's His name. It's who He is. Robert Lethem, who wrote a really big, thick book on the Trinity, um, says this. He says, the name Father <clears throat> is not merely a simile as if God were like a father, or even a metaphor, which he says is an unusual use of language, drawing attention to aspects of God's nature in surprising terms. But rather, it's a definite personal name. In contrast, the term mother, when used in reference to God in the Old Testament, is a simile, but never a metaphor, and it's completely absent in the New Testament. Father is the proper name for God, he says and does not merely describe what God is like. I like the way Michael Reeves put it last week. I cited it. It says, it's not that this God does being Father as a day job, only to kick back in the evenings as plain old God. It's not that He has a nice blob of fatherly icing on top. He is Father all the way down. Thus, all that He does, He does as Father. And, and we talked about two great piles of truth about God as our Father. The one is that He has authority over all things, right? All of creation, all of us, even within the Trinity, the Father has authority. He's over all. And we saw that in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, when all things are subjected to Him, that is the Son, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him, the Father, who put all things in subjection under Him, the Son, that God the Father may be all in all. And we see that the Son is even subject to the Father. But that's not all that we learned about the Father, and that's not all the Father is, a ruler. The Father is a loving Father. He rules in love, and He has an amazing love for His Son, that in John 17 we see Jesus praying, and at the end of that verse He says, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Before the world even existed, the Father was loving the Son. And John says he loves him such that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The Father does rule over all, but he also loves the Son. He loves all of his children, all who are adopted into his family by the work of His Son on the cross. Such that, okay, it's the coolest thing in the world to be adopted into God's family. To have God as your Father, it doesn't get any better than that on Father's Day. Okay? If God is your Father, then that's the deal. Okay? J.I. Packer is really smart. Okay? He wrote the book on knowing God. That's the title. Listen to what he says about having God as your father. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, 
Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father, he says, is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. And so John writes, see what great love the Father has lavished on us? That we should be called the children of God. That's the deal. The best thing in the world is to have God as your father. Make sure you get that right. In the midst of all the church stuff, don't miss that the most important thing is to be adopted as God's child. Now, on this Father's Day, I want to look at those same two great piles of truths But not from the side of the Father. Today we're going to look at him from from the side of the Son. And as we do that, I'd like to just pause and pray and ask the Father to use the Spirit to teach us about the Son. Right? Bye with me. Father, on Father's Day, to call you that is, is the best. Whatever happens the rest of this day, wonderful as it will be, that's the greatest privilege, that we get to call you Father. And I pray that that would be enriched today as we look at the love your Son has for you as his Father, that we might delight in it as well, that we might share in it even as your adopted children. And so we ask for the Spirit's help to be our teacher and guide now, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, um, I'm going to focus almost exclusively on the Son and His relationship with the Father. Next week, we'll focus more on the Holy Spirit. And, but even today, as I talk about the Son, this is really what you might call an iceberg sermon. We're going to look at about the 10% of teaching about Jesus that's above the waterline. There's a whole lot about Jesus that we're not going to talk about. Now, we've spent a year and a half studying the Gospel of Matthew, all about Jesus as our good and mighty King, mercifully. But today, just think with me about how the Son fits in this amazing thing called the Trinity, especially in relation to His Father. Now, a long time ago, there was a guy, his name was Arius, and Arius... um, came up with kind of a new idea about the Son. Even though he said the Son was divine, he also said the Son was created by the Father. And so there was a time, Arius said, when the Son was not. The Son was not eternal. Um, And what, what this ended up making was it ended up making the Son less than the Father, less making Jesus less than God, and it provoked a bit of a crisis. So the church's best and brightest got together in a city called Nicaea, and they started talking and writing and arguing and praying about this new perspective on the sun that Arius was proposing, and they hammered out 
um, something that's called the Nicene Creed in response to this new threat to right thinking about Jesus the Son. And according to the source of all things um, true and reliable, uh, Wikipedia, we learn <clears throat> that the Nicene Creed is the profession of faith or the creed that is most widely used around the world in Christian liturgy. It forms the mainstream definition of Christianity for most Christians. The Nicene Creed has been normative for the Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Church of the East, the Oriental Orthodox Churches, the Anglican Communion, and many Protestant denominations. So, the Nicene Creed, the main section of it, it's about Jesus. And I've lifted it out for us, and I'd like for us to recite that together. And just listen to who Jesus is as we say it, okay? Recite it with me here. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, He rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Oh, now there, there's a bunch of stuff about Jesus, okay, packed in really dense language. But if nothing else, you come away from that, you have to come away from that thinking, Jesus is awesome, right? If he's all that, is he not awesome? If those things are true about Jesus, um, in Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul says that before Jesus became a man, he existed in the form of God. Okay. Yet, uh, when we think about that first pile of truth we talked about last week, that God the Father has authority over all things, the Father rules over all, we see that the Son, in all of his awesomeness as God, submits to the will of the Father, gladly. So, John chapter 5 is an amazing intertwining of these two truths. That Jesus is, has the awesomeness of God, He is God, and yet He chooses to submit to the Father, to God the Father. Look at it with me in John 5. It says, uh, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So even Jesus' enemies understood it. Jesus was making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So he makes himself equal with God, but he only does what the Father tells him to. 
For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him so, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Like Father, like Son. The one has the power to raise the dead, so does the other one. Jesus is claiming to be God. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Worship the Father, worship the Son. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. He's not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming now here when the dead will hear not the voice of the Father, but the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear Him will live. For the, as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. Jesus can't any clearer say that He and the Father are one than He's saying it relentlessly here. And the Father has given him authority to exercise judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil at the, to the resurrection of judgment. And then Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will have, of him who sent me. You know, it becomes incredibly clear here that the Son is equal with the Father. He does what only the Father can do. And yet it's also equally clear that He does only that that the Father tells Him to do. He submits to the Father, doing only what the Father desires. There is a kind of social order within the Trinity. And it's not mutual. Now, there's a mutuality of love, as we're going to see. There's a mutuality of shared glory, as we're going to see. But only the Father sends the Son. The Son does not send the Father. Only the Son says, I, will, I don't do whatever I want to do. I only do what the Father tells me. The Father does not say that. So on, on Friday afternoon, I'm in my office. I get this call. Um, it's late Friday afternoon. I'm working on finishing up my notes for today, and I get this call from my son <clears throat> saying that he needs me to go to the bank. He's in Charlotte, and he has to get money from the bank before the bank closed so he can buy a truck on Saturday. So I, the father, end up running errands for the son. Okay? This is not how the Trinity works. Okay? It doesn't work that way. There's not mutuality in the order of the Trinity. There's mutuality of love, you're going to see that today, but not mutuality in, in terms of the way the order plays out. There has always been, it appears, and always will be an order amongst the Godhead wherein the Son, and as we'll see next week, the Spirit, while being fully God in every sense, submit to the will of the Father, gladly. Now, this begs the question for us, especially us as Americans, right? If you're equal, why would you submit? If you're equal, why would you always do what the other person says? That, that's a bit of a puzzle for us. 
It is not because the Father is more worthy than the Son. We have seen even the Son has declared Himself to be equal with God. His enemies even understood that. Colossians 2 says it really plainly. For in Him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is God. And our doctrinal statement says that these three, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are one God worthy of precisely the same confidence, obedience, and worship. It's not that the Father forces His will upon the Son and makes Him do His will. Even though it sounds like that, remember the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is about to go to the cross? And he says to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So is the Father forcing his will on the Son? Tim Chester explains it this way. He says, when the daughter of friends of ours was three years old, she fell into an icy river, and fortunately her arms caught on the ice so that she was not fully submerged. Immediately her father jumped in and pulled her out. If you had frozen time before he jumped and asked whether he wanted to jump in, he would probably have answered yes and no. (laughs) At one level, he did not want to enter the icy waters. There was no pleasure in it. Instead, it was danger and suffering. Yet at another level, the answer was clearly yes. His fatherly love overcame any regard for personal discomfort, so he jumped willingly. He says the same is true here of Jesus. As he looked at Gethsemane and at his separation from God on the cross, he recoiled from it. If there had been another way, he would have taken it, but he went to the cross willingly. He went willingly because of his love for his people and, as we'll see, because of his love for the Father who sent him. Now, we're still left with our question, though. If they're equal in all ways, why is it that the Son submits to the will of the Father, especially if it's going to cost Him so dearly? And that takes us to that second great pile of teaching, that the Father acts in love towards all of His creation, but especially towards His Son. And today what we'll see is that the Son reciprocates that love back to the Father. And the Son displays His love for His Father By his obedience. So in John 14, Jesus says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus' love for his Father is put on display by his obedience. Some um, believing statistician with way too much time on their hand has tried to estimate how many times Jesus obeyed the Father. This is how they worked it out. They assumed that Jesus lived approximately 33 and a third years, or 1,057,157,021 seconds, roughly. In every second, they say that the average human being's brain has 100 billion neurons all firing around 200 times per second, giving a capacity of 200 million billion firings per second. 
If we want to know how many conscious decisions Jesus made to obey his Father's will, multiply 20 million billion by the number of seconds he lived, 1,057,157,021, which looks like this. It equals a very large number. That's all that I know. All right? Jesus submitted to the Father in love a lot, always, perfectly, he was without sin, right? And he did not do this begrudgingly. He loved it. Jesus thrived on it. He said it was his, his food. My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It's how Jesus loved the Father. John 15 says, if you keep my commandments, Jesus says, you'll abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. You know, we saw last week, Father loves His Son very much. He has loved Him before the foundation of the world such that He gives all things to Him. And now we see that the Son loves the Father as well in His obedience, such that He always obeys Him even when it costs him the greatest of sufferings, even on the cross. And out of that loving communion, which has existed for eternity, the Father loving the Son and the Son loving Him back, the love of God now spills over onto us. The Son is happy to humble Himself, take on human form, to show us the Father, because He loves the Father. Um, if, if you got engaged to the person of your dreams, and you didn't want to introduce them to your family, I'd, I'd wonder about that. You know, my kids get engaged. They can't wait for us to meet their fiancé. But if you didn't want, now I understand if you don't want your fiancé to meet your family. I, understand, I get that. But if you don't want your family to meet your fiancé, that would give me pause. There's no reluctance on the part of Jesus. See the Father. I'm coming so you can see the Father whom I love and you might know His love. So he who existed in the form of God humbled himself, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, because he wants us to know the Father. In John 14, Thomas says to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Jesus is talking about going away. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, Thomas, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Philip, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? 
So you want to know what the Father's like? Look at the Son. Like Father, like Son. Think of it this way. This is an illustration that's been kicked around a bit. Suppose that you are uh, meeting with somebody down at the local coffee shop and, and whoever you're meeting with says, uh, Hey, I understand Larry Trotter's your pastor. You say, Yeah, Larry's my pastor. You know Larry? Yeah, I know Larry Trotter. You start talking about Larry Trotter and you think, That does not sound like the Larry Trotter I know. And the guy says, well, Yeah, yeah, I went to high school with him way back like 10 years ago. <clears throat> and... Uh, and you say, not sure it's the same Larry Trotter. So you go online and you pull up my high school yearbook. And you start looking. This is back when basketball players knew how to wear shorts. I mean, shorts. <laughs> These baggy capri things. Shorts. And you look in the yearbook. And sure enough, there's number 20, the non-power forward. Um, also, the non-shooting guard, that was my other position that I played. Um, number 20, right there, and you look at him, and the guy looks and says, that's not the Larry Trotter I know. So, show him the picture. Show me the yearbook photo, and I'll tell you if that is the guy we're talking about. Um, Jesus, Jesus is that yearbook photo. If we want to know what the Father's like, if we are believing in the same God, if we're talking about the same Father... Look at the yearbook photo. Jesus is the yearbook photo. He shows us the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. Okay. See the Son? See the Father. Know the Son? Know the Father. Don't know the Son? Won't know the Father. So if you want to know the Father, look to His Son. Learn about His Son. Study His Son. Believe His Son. Follow His Son. Because the Son came to show you the Father that you might know the same love that the Father has for His Son as His adopted children. This is how Jesus closes His great prayer for His disciples, for you and me. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that have sent me. And then He prays, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me, Father, may be in them and I in them. See, Jesus came not only so that we know what the Father's like, but that we would know the Father's love, the same love that he loves Jesus with. But we would know that. Now, if you go way back to the beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve walked in this love. Okay? They walked perfectly in it, without sin. And then, and then something terrible happened. What happened? What went wrong? I like the way Michael Reeves describes it. He says, what then went wrong? It was not that Adam and Eve stopped loving they were created as lovers in the image of God, and they, would con they could not undo that. Instead, their love turned, he says. So much so that when the Apostle Paul writes about sinners, he describes sinners as people who are lovers of self, lovers of money, 
proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Reeves says, lovers we remain, but twisted. Our love misdirected and perverted. Created to love God, we turn to love ourselves and anything but God. He says, this is just what we see in the original sin of Adam and Eve. Eve takes and eats the forbidden fruit because a love for herself and gaining wisdom for herself has overcome any love she might have had for God. The problem is deeper than her actions, deeper than outward obedience. Her act of sin was merely the manifestation of the turn in her heart. She now desired the fruit more than she desired God. And as it was with Eve, so it was with Adam, and so it has been with every person who ever walked the face of the earth, including you and me. Such that James says, each person is tempted when he is Lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. It all flows from what we wrongly desire when our love turns away from God towards us or other things. So when Eve's love turned and Adam's and everyone who would follow How do you think the father respond to having his love spurned like that? He pursued in love. And he sent prophet after prophet after prophet and king after king after king until finally he decided he would send his son. Surely they would listen to his son. And 1 John 4 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The Father sent the Son so that we might share in their love. The Son came that He might show us the Father and that we might be adopted and become just like Him, sons and daughters loved by the Father, even as the Father loves His only begotten Son. This is remarkable. If you you are adopted through faith in Jesus into God's family, on the one hand, you become like a brother or a sister to Jesus, which is pretty mind-blowing. And then you are loved as one of God's adopted children with the same love that the Father has eternally loved His Son. How ought that affect us? How ought this whole idea of the Son's loving submission to the Father affect us? Well, on the one hand, like we saw last week, how you think about Father affects your prayers, and now what you understand about the Son affects your prayers. Every prayer we pray comes to the Father through the Son. 
We saw last week that the normal pattern, the typical pattern for Christian prayers is to pray to our Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Spirit. So what do we mean when we pray in the name of the Son? Um, on the one hand, it means alignment. It means alignment with the Son's will and purposes. To pray in His name is to pray according to what the Son desires. But it also means access. To pray in the name of the Son means we don't come on our own merit. We come before the Father in the name of the Son. Dave Simmons tells a story. He's got his little boy at one of those little amusement parks that roll in and out of town, one of the little carnivals, and it's his birthday party, and he's got like about seven of his little friends there, and he's just passing out tickets left and right to get on all the rides, and they're standing at the Ferris wheel, and he's passing out tickets, counting off all the boys. He gets to seven, and there's another little boy. He's <laughs> an eighth little boy. He's got a little freeloader at the end of the line, and he's like, whoa, wait a minute. You're not invited. You don't get a ticket. And then his son turns around from the front of the line and says, it's okay, Dad. He's with me. He's my new friend. So what do you think the dad does? Dave gives him a ticket, and he gets on the ride. The son gives him access to the father, and the father in love, what did John say? Gives his son everything. To pray in his name aligns us with his purpose and gives us son-like access to the father. Um, it shapes the way we pray. But the loving submission of the Son is also supposed to shape our families. See, Christian families are intended and designed by God to be these little pictures of the triune God, trotted about for the world to see how the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. Now, some of you are thinking this is a major, sounds like a major faux pas on the part of the heavenly marketing division, that your family and the way you love each other should be the the portrait of how God loves, but that's the deal. Okay? That's what we do. That's, that's why we're here, why, why, why we exist as a church family, why our families exist as believing families. We, we show God. We show the world what the love of God looks like by how we love one another. And the loving submission of Christ is the pattern the way he loves the Father is the pattern for the way believing wives love their husbands. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about it. It says, uh, Paul says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And he establishes an order in, in family that's to, to mirror and reflect the order that is in the Trinity so that the way we love is supposed to portray the way the Son loves the Father. We learn from the Trinity that equality does not mean sameness of role. There is both equality and unity and diversity of role within the Trinity. In fact, that's how we tell the members of the Trinity apart. They're all God, right? They're all the same but they relate to each other as Father and as Son and as Spirit. And the Father is over the Son, and the Son is in glad submission, loving submission to the Father. Um, so within marriage, equality of value does not have to mean sameness of role. 
as the Son loves the Father in submitting to Him, so wives are called to mirror that love as they lovingly submit to their husbands. Christian submission for wives makes no sense at all if you don't understand the Trinity. But if you understand the Trinity and the way the Son lovingly submits to the Father, though fully equal in value, then you understand how your marriage is supposed to model God, the triune God to the world, so they know how the Father loves the Son and vice versa. Now, uh, these words are laden with meaning that are inappropriate and unfortunate in our society. And let me just share a couple of things real quickly by virtue of clarification that may help. Wayne Grudem has listed a handful of things that submission is not for a wife in a marriage, in a believing marriage. Submission, he says, does not mean putting a husband in the place of Christ. Submission does not mean giving up independent thought. Submission does not mean that the wife should give in to every demand of her husband. Submission is not based on lesser competence or intelligence. Submission does not mean being fearful or timid. And this last one is wrong. The double negatives got carried away. Submission is not inconsistent with equality. Okay? And you can think about that on your way home. But trust me, that's wrong. Submission is not inconsistent with equality. So you can be equal and still be like the Son is to the Father. In fact, that's how we show how the, Father, how the Son loves the Father to the world. John Piper has given a helpful, positive statement about submission. He said, submission for a believing wife is an attitude that says to her husband, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I am glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. I don't flourish when you are passive, and I have to make sure the family works. He says, but the attitude of Christian submission also says, it grieves me when you venture into sinful acts, and you want to take me with you. You know I can't do that. I have no desire to resist you. On the contrary, I flourish most when I can respond creatively and joyfully to your lead. But I can't follow you into sin. As much as I love to honor your leadership in our marriage, Christ is my king. The submission of Christ, ladies, is to mark you such that your marriages increasingly reflect your love for your husband in the way that the son loves the father, fully equal, but in glad submission. Now, perhaps more obviously even, the way children, Christian children, relate to their parents is to be also to be a reflection of the way the son obeys the father. Kids, listen up. Obedience is the great love language of your parents. Okay? If you want to show your parents that you love them, then this whole first-time obedience thing they keep harping at you about, do that, okay? That's like yelling at your parents, I love you, I love you, I love you, in a way that they really believe you, okay? Um, and if, when you do that, you are reflecting the love of Jesus for his Father in a way that your friends who don't come from believing families don't see elsewhere. You know, I, I listen to the stories that trickle into my home from my kids' friends about um, 
children. Recently, we had a daughter disrespecting her mother to the point where she declared that she hated her on Facebook. Okay? They're not seeing what it means for a child to trust the father such that they can love their parents by obeying them. And that, that, even though they may not say it, is a beautiful and attractive thing. Plus, as you honor your parents, not just your father, perhaps especially your father on Father's Day, but as you honor your parents, you are loving your heavenly father. Because Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commands. And one of his commands is to honor your father and mother. Christian families uniquely represent the love of the Son for the Father when they love one another with this wise, trusting act of submissive love. Now, it is Father's Day, so I should probably at least take one shot at dads as well. Um, It's interesting, dads, that when theologians write about the Trinity, they'll write about it and they'll say this. Augustine was the first to say it, and it's common. The Father is the lover, the Son is the beloved, and the Holy Spirit is like the love that they share. Now, we'll see next week that the the problem with that is the Holy Spirit piece because it makes Him impersonal, and He's a person, just like the Father and the Son. But what Augustine and others have absolutely nailed is the, the general tenor of the Bible is that the Father is the lover and the Son is the beloved. And so, dads, as, as you want to reflect to your children what God the Father is like, and if you want watching families around you to know what our Father is like in heaven, then you really have to get better at loving your kids. Loving your kids intentionally, sacrificially, in ways that matter to them and bless them. Okay. And I'll Mercifully stop there because it's Father's Day. Um, But oh, how the Father loves His Son, such that He gives the Son everything. He's loved Him like that since before the foundation of the world. And how the Son loves the Father, so that He doesn't even consider doing anything on His own. He only does what pleases His Father. This is the love that shapes our church, and shapes our family, and is offered to you to experience. Just like the Father loves His Son, the Son has made adoption possible for you through His good work on the cross. If you know anything about adoption these days, you know that it's really, really expensive. It costs a fortune to adopt someone in most cases. But you have no idea what it costs for the Father to adopt you. Jesus himself says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Your adoption cost the Son his life. He died on the cross to purchase you, to ransom you back from slavery to sin, and to make you his brother, his sister, and an adopted child of the Father, awash with the Father's love. And today, if, if you feel like you're sitting on the outside of God's family looking in, know that today, through, through these teachings, the Father is sliding adoption papers across the table to you and asking you to believe, to welcome His love that was brought to you by His Son, who died not for His own sins but for yours, to make a way for you back to the Father.
Let's stop and pray about that, if you would. Let's bow. Father, I pray specifically for those who stand outside of your love as Father, who have not yet said yes to your offer to adopt them that came through Jesus. And I pray now that you would help them say yes to you and no to lesser loves. The Bible calls them sins. To turn from those things and to love you. To welcome and receive your love for them as their heavenly Father. So grant them faith to believe. And Lord, grant us faith to walk this out in love. In our families, here in this church family, before the world as they watch us to see what you are like. We ask this in Jesus, the Son's name.